Hear the word of God from Romans chapters 9 and 11. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And now to chapter 11, verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. 
Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. What a powerful and profound passage. This morning we're looking at three chapters, Romans 9 through 11. How does Paul end his grand work? You know, Romans 1 through 11 is, is the beginning of, of, this, of this letter to the Roman church, a church that was divided, a church that had Jews and Gentiles and, and a, ch- a church that was figuring out how to be a, a, a church with different cultures, with different backgrounds, with different religious experiences, with people who were part of this covenant promise to Abraham. And they, they learned about that in their childhood, in their homes. And then others who were Roman pagans who, who enter in and are grafted into this community. How are they going to live together? And Paul gives us We've already studied, you know, Romans 1 through 8, and we see just so much richness of the good news of Jesus and how God's plan from the fall of Adam to, to the, the present day that they're experiencing as that local church is to save people. And we get to Romans 9 through 11. It is one section, so we're studying it together as one section this morning. I can't cover everything, but we're going to look at it as a whole. But to start off, I want to ask a question. How many of you are inquisitive? How many of you want to know your family's history? Anybody? Kind of want to know some people. You ask grandma or great grandma or you finally meet that great uncle who actually can square off the stories that your grandpa told you wrong. That's a true story of my family. Um, How many of you want to know all the details on how things work? Were you one of the kids who asked lots of questions? I remember asking my dad when I was like five, you know, Dad, how do cars work? How do the lights work? How does it get energy? You know, I just kept asking question after question and into adulthood. Some people want to know things. How many of you want things to be fair? You want to make sure that, you know, you want to know that everything's okay, that, that this is right, that this is fair, that that is fair. How many of you, when you were a kid with fairness, were like, I was playing with it first. It's mine. You know, you, you had these rules and you wanted... Your knowledge had to be based on the on this fairness. And how many of you just wanted harmony? So you were even though the toy was yours and you had it first, you still give it to the sibling because you want harmony and you don't want them to whine and complain. 
How many of you want, want to ponder the big questions of life? Or how many of you are tired and worn out and you're just like, I just want to wake up today and live today? <laughs> how many of you are content with just knowing about your field or what you've studied and you're like, everything else I don't need to know about? And how much should we know? And depending on your personality, your experiences, your interest, or what's going on in your life right now, you might just be really busy so you don't have a lot of time to learn new things. This will drastically affect how many questions you ask and what questions you ask. The Enneagram is kind of popular right now. A lot of people at Waypoint are saying, what are you, this, there. You know, it's a tool. It's not the end-all thing, but it's a tool that divides personalities into nine basic core personality types. But people have asked me, I've, I've gone from, people said I'm a one, people said I'm a two, now they've settled I'm on a five. I think it means I'm the inquisitive person. I ask lots of questions. So I, th I think it's right. Um, and I, I believe that depending on your personality, your experiences, your interests, all the, what's going on in your life, it drastically affects how you experience scripture too. That's why we can have some arguments or disagreements in the church a lot of times. It's not necessarily just we disagree on theology, but it's we disagree on how we're experiencing right now this passage. And it can be good. It can be lead to good discussion. It can lead to the church growing and really hashing out the tension that we see in Scripture and the, the tension that it means to be this body of people who God brings together. We, we're not an affinity group. We're not all people who love to play golf or all people who love this. We're, we're, we're just people in the community who love Jesus. And that's how God has brought us together. But sometimes when we come to this, the text, we bring all our experiences and our personalities. And I think one of the passages, I think Romans 1 through 11 is a place where you could ask 10 different Christians, what does it mean? And they're going to give you lots of stuff. They're going to give you, oh, I love Romans because of this. I love Romans because of that. I love Romans because of this. Because Paul includes a lot of stuff in there. Every sentence is packed. Every word is built on the Old Testament covenant promises and what is fulfilled in the good news of Jesus that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And Paul's saying, this is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll see this good news. And I'm helping you put all these pieces together. So, of course, people are going to get lots of stuff out of it. And I think Romans 9 through 11, people get lots and lots of stuff. So, how does Paul... So Paul could have just went from chapter 8 to chapter 12. It, it would have made total sense. Uh, and actually, I know some Christians who are frustrated by 9 through 11. They feel like, wow, I just wish it would, he would have just ended it at 8. Why does he bring back a lot of these themes about Jews and Gentiles? But if we don't have Romans 10, we don't have the passage about you know, those who call upon the name of the Lord. And if you confess with your mouth. So, so then they're like, no, we need it there. But why is it there? And Paul, let's look at what Paul says and, and try to just dig in this morning very briefly. He starts off by saying this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart. So Paul is saying, he uses the word truth. He hasn't used the word truth in all the chapters except for in chapter 1 and 2 when he says this statement. You know, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. So Paul only talks about, uses the word truth, the Greek word aletheia, like in the beginning when he's talking about them not knowing the truth, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And he doesn't bring it up in, the, in two through eight. And he brings it up against here. So he's saying like, there's, there's this truth that I want to convey. 
that I want to help summarize everything I've showed you in chapters one through eight, because you're probably sitting here in the congregation and being like, if the promise was for the children of Abraham, why are tons of Jews in the city of Rome? There could have been up to 40,000 Jews in the city of Rome, maybe almost as many as there were in Jerusalem. You know, we don't know the exact numbers. We just guess. But why are all these Jews not accepting Christ? So what's going on? The Gentiles might feel like, sweet, we got it. They lost it. The Jews might be like, well, maybe Paul's not preaching right or something. Maybe there's something off. And Paul's trying to set the record straight. But more importantly, he's just trying to show both groups again that God has a plan and there's a mystery to it. And we don't understand it all. What is Romans 9 through 11 about? Generally, it's about the culmination of what he's already taught. And where does Israel fit in and how are the Jews and Gentiles? Just a, another reminder of everything he's just taught, of how we can work this thing out and be a church together and remember that we are called, we are elected, and we have a mission. We, are part, we have a past, we have a present, and we have a future, and it's all in Jesus. That's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. I love this, this summary of, of 9 through 11 and from a New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. He says this. People have often imagined that chapters 9 through 11 are a kind of bracket, an appendix, tackling different, a different subject to the rest of the letter. But that only shows how badly Romans as a whole has been misread. The whole letter is about the way God is fulfilling his ancient promises in and through Jesus. And what this means and what this will mean in practice. This inevitably raises the question of a proper Christian attitude toward those Jews who do not accept Jesus as Messiah. So before Paul can move on and tell us how to live out this community, you know, Romans 12, therefore, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's about the Christian community. It talks about the weak and the strong Christians, not causing your brothers to stumble. That's all later in Romans. How can we get there? Because they need to be unified as people. That's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. A brief outline, if you'd want to go more, just the study Bible outline. I got this from one scholar. It's, the first part is Paul's grief over Israel. Then he shifts into the story of Israel from Abraham to exile that it displays. God's justice and judgment and mercy. Then Paul shifts to God's covenant faithfulness is revealed in the Messiah, Jesus. And then Paul ends the, the section with God's mercy and covenant faithfulness to save all Israel. And by all Israel, it means all those who are saved and they're grafted in. And we read that passage earlier and we'll talk about that. So all of us, you know, Father Abraham. Why do we sing about Abraham when we're Christians? We should be singing like Father Paul and John and Peter. You know, we don't. We sing about Abraham because he's our father. Because we're the gospel, the good news is proclaimed in the covenant with Abraham. And we're grafted into that. Paul wants them to remember that, both groups, because both groups might want to boast or say, well, we got Abraham. Well, yeah, but we got Jesus and, you know, we're here now and your, your guys are, Romans are in control. You know, there, there's probably a lot of pride, a lot of struggle in this Roman church. So this morning, I don't have a ton of time, but some of you, I just want to address one thing. Some of you might be like, well, what about election? I was taught Romans 9 through 11 is about election. And there's generally three camps when it comes to election. Election is how we as God's people are elected, meaning we're called as a group of people to, to be believers, to be the children of God. And the three general camps in Protestant Christianity that we, you might experience is a group called the Calvinists, 
Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, modern day John Piper, another group called the Arminian or the Wesleyan, John and Charles Wesley, Robert Coleman, Billy Graham, there would be in that group. And then there's another group I call the mystery or the tension group. They don't have a name. They kind of ride in between. They don't pick a side. Uh, C.S. Lewis, A.W. Tozier would be in that category. They don't, they don't pick, a, pick a camp. You don't have to pick a camp, but sometimes it helps. Um, but is, and the interesting thing is I've, I, I've, had, I've been studying this for over 20 years. Like I really have been fascinated by Romans, all of Romans, particularly 9 through 11. And one thing I've continually found is all three groups, when they want to explain election, they use Romans 9 through 11 to defend their side. It's not like one group uses one, pass, one section, like, oh, we always go to Galatians. We always go to Ephesians. We always go to Colossians. No, all three groups, all, they all find comfort and peace in Romans 9 through 11. So there's something about it that the way that God gave it to us in his providence, I believe that we, we get to know God and his election. But there has to be a mystery to it, because how could John Wesley and John Calvin read it and still say, you know, come to more Western logical conclusions. Now, if you go to other parts of the world, they're not even thinking about election. They're not even asking the same questions that a lot of the post-Enlightenment Europeans asked. So they don't even maybe even think about it in those terms. They're thinking about it in completely different terms. But that's okay. 9 through 11 is there to help us understand the mystery of the mercy of God. So how do I summarize 9 through 11? Real quick, I just say God is patient and merciful. Everything is happening according to plan. A.K.A. the Old Testament is awesome, and it points us to Christ. You know, the, who, Christ is the culmination of all things. He is the very thing all the children of the world need, and in Adam, and he promised it to Adam, and we're adopted in Abraham's family. It's the good news of Jesus. It's all there in Romans 9 through 11. So what are some truths that we can glean? I can't teach the whole passage this morning, but I can teach things. So I'm going to go through 11. You might be like, 11? All right, I'm cutting the video off and putting the kids to bed or whatever. No. I mean, a few of them I'm going to hit on a little more deeply. Most of them are just going to just cover the idea because it's there. So truth number one, it's okay to be heartbroken about lost people. I'm going to read a different translation of Romans 9, 1 through 3. This is Paul speaking. I'm speaking the truth in the Messiah, Jesus. I'm not lying. I call my conscience as witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and endless pain in my heart. Left to my own self, I am inclined to pray that I would be accursed, cut off from the Messiah on behalf of my own family, my own flesh and blood relatives. Some of you, when you heard that passage, you might be a little uncomfortable. You might have been like, is Paul, Paul. The apostle, the guy, grace alone, you know, Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, really saying he's willing to be cut off. Like his, he would want his relationship with Christ to be cut off so that other people could be saved. And there's a hyperbole here. There's a, there's a method that Paul's using that he's probably going back to Exodus 32. When Moses pleads for the people after they build the golden calf. This is what Moses says. This is Exodus 32, 32. But now please forgive their sins. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Otto Cuss, an old New Testament scholar years ago on this very passage in Romans says, one cannot measure the speech of the heart with rules of logic. 
If you leave the Western logical world, you'll hear a lot more language like this, language of anguish and everything. When, you're, when it's in something of the heart, it doesn't have to be logical. And I believe Paul's saying this, and it's, it's good for us to hear this, because many of us are heartbroken about loved ones who are lost, loved ones who have turned away from the, the Christian faith, loved ones who are struggling, and we're like, God, are you doing something? It's okay to be heartbroken for them. It's okay to pray for them. It's okay to, to have these emotions. Paul did. And, and I think that's a great example for us. Another truth I see in this passage, Romans, in the, the three chapters, God is faithful to his covenant promises. And if you listen to any time I preach in the Pentateuch, James, now Romans, we've, these are the last few sermon series, I keep bringing this up. It's true. God is faithful to his covenant promises. In Jesus, all, everything is fulfilled. This morning, we're going to take communion, the new covenant in his blood, the promise that he gives in Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah and, and Isaiah of this new covenant that he pro really promises back in Deuteronomy. God is faithful to his covenant promises. In Romans 9, 4, and 5, he, he tells of you know, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. This is the only time in Paul's writing where he actually doesn't talk about just Christians in adoption, but he uses the word adoption. Like they were adopted in as God's people. They were part of the covenant community. And it's in verse 5, it says, Theirs are the patriarchs from whom there is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So just the fact that the Roman church exists, that there are Jews and Gentiles, is an answer to the prayers and the, the covenant promises of Isaiah. Actually, even later on in, in chapter 10, Paul's going to quote Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, like many, many times. The promises came true in Jesus. The fact that they're sitting there having a gathering in the capital of Rome. The Romans killed Jesus, remember that. And they're, they're worshiping Jesus. It showed that God's faithfulness, God's promises was fulfilled. And Abraham's seed and, and Abraham's family is growing. Truth number three, God's judgment and choices are merciful and just. He is the potter, we are the clay. In chapter 9, verse 16, it says, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. He is merciful. Then moving on to verse 19, it says, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? He's talking to Jews and Gentiles here, but more Jews. And he's quoting the Old Testament, some passages about the potter and the clay. Shall what is form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So Paul's using real life examples, but he's quoting Isaiah 64 and Jeremiah. 18.6. The rest of chapter 9 and 10 have many, many quotes and references, you know, over 50 references and multiple direct quotes from Old Testament passage, passages reiterating God's patience and his faithfulness to Israel and his plan to save his people through faith in Jesus. He is the potter. We are the clay. This is good news. Truth number four. Righteousness comes from faith. Faith comes from hearing about Jesus. 
Two times in this section, Paul brings up faith in, in a particular way, and he's reiterating what we find in earlier in, in Romans 3, Romans 5, other parts of his letters. He says in 9.30, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? And then in verse 10.17, he says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And this is in the section where he begins to show that the, the Jews were supposed to be the light to the nation. And now we have this message, this good news. The good news that Isaiah is like prophesying about and proclaiming is, is about Christ. The Messiah has come. And we're going to actually, as a church, study Matthew and Isaiah together. They call Isaiah the fifth gospel. We're going to start that in our Advent series and go well past Easter as we look at these two awesome books of the Bible and see the good news in Matthew, but how it, it starts with Isaiah and God's covenant that, and his promises that, that Isaiah prophesies about that come true in Jesus. So righteousness comes from faith. Faith comes from hearing about Jesus. And this is why we as Waypoint tell people about Jesus. We do it in every way possible, but we're committed to telling people the good news about Jesus. Truth number five, Jesus is the faithful one that Israel could not be. And I think this is found very profoundly and deeply in Romans 3 through 5. But I think a lot of people miss Romans. We read Romans very individualistically. It's about me and how I was saved. And we forget that it's about Israel and God's covenant with them. Now, my salvation is in there. Over and over and over again, you can learn about how we're saved and, and rejoice in that. But it's, it's also about that they failed and Jesus was the perfect one. He did everything. He's even called the prophet, the priest, and the king. He fulfills all the roles that Israel couldn't fulfill. He was the true and righteous one that truly followed the law so that we could be free. I love this. In, in chapter 10, verse 4, it says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be no righteousness for ever, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And then the New Living translation, that was the NIV translation, it says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose of, for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. At the time Paul is writing this, Jesus has already died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has accomplished the purpose. And any person that the Roman or Jew shares with and the you share with or I share with, they can call upon the name of God, believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they will be made right with God. Amen. This is good news. Paul goes on and says in verse 5, Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the deep. These are Old Testament passages. Uh, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near to you. And this is probably a reference to Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is 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 here at hand. It is in your mouth and on your heart. You have Jesus, the word made flesh. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How many of you know that one? This is the crux. So in the middle of all this stuff about election and Jews and Gentiles and the law and the Jesus is the culmination of the law, we get this passage that we tell people this is probably the simplest phrase we could tell someone. 
they're like, What's, what should I do? Most people would take them back to this passage. You know, you want to talk about God's plan for, the, for people and you want to talk about how he saved us and he loves us. And they're like, okay, what do I do? And just say, let's go to Matthew. Let's go to Mark. Read it together. Learn who Jesus is. And then declare with your mouth and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. This is good news, y'all. Jesus is the faithful one that Israel couldn't be. And we, all we have to do is confess that. His, re, his resurrection shows that the promise was fulfilled and that he accomplished all that Israel couldn't accomplish. Truth number six, God is moving in the world. The good news is good news for all people. And we'll really get to see this as we study Isaiah and Matthew. In chapter 10, verse 10, it says, For with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. All scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Sorry. As scripture says, he's quoting the Old Testament again. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on and talks about how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching it to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, again, a quote from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. And that's the reality they're at right now. But that was also the reality at the time of Elijah and at the time of Jeremiah and the time of Isaiah and the time of Moses. But not all Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. God is moving in the world. Romans 10, it's almost like a side note. Like, Paul's talking about all this other stuff, and he's like, hey, Jews, guess what? You were supposed to tell the Gentiles. The Roman church exists today because it was in Deuteronomy. It was in, it was in, it's in Exodus when, when God meets Abraham. It's in Genesis when God meets Abraham and says, you're going to be a light to the nations. And it's, again, Isaiah reiterates it over and over and over again. God is moving in the world. The good news is the good news for all people. Truth number seven, nothing can stop God's plan. Even in Israel's failure and unfaithfulness to the covenant, God's plan prevailed in Jesus. And there's a bunch of Old Testament passages, I'm not going to go through them, where Paul quotes them in, in verse 18, 19, 20, 21. He's, he's quoting this tapestry of Old Testament passages showing that even though the people had God's favor, even though they had his covenant, even though they had his love, even though they had all the stuff, they still struggled and they still failed. But God was always faithful and he was always patient and he was always willing to bring them back. All they had to do was turn to him. Even in Israel's failure and unfaithfulness to the covenant, God's plan prevailed and it prevailed in Jesus. We get Jesus. And I think this gives us a lot of comfort as the church today. You guys think the church is, was Israel more messed up than the church or is the church more messed up than Israel? It's kind of a toss up. You guys remember studying like in Sunday school, you studied like Israelites in the wilderness did this, they did that. And you're like stupid people. And then you're like, wait, we do the same thing. That's kind of like the point of Sunday school. Let all those lessons was showing that individually we do those, corporately we do those, we, we struggle. We, we say, thanks, God, for your favor. All right, I'll take it from here. <laughs> you know, look at judges, look at kings, 
Look at Joshua. Look at those books and read those narratives and, and you'll see historical narratives. You'll see their failures. But it's, it's comforting because we know that even when we mess up, God is faithful. His church will prevail. Now, it doesn't mean you go out and mess up on purpose. Paul ta- addresses that earlier. Don't just do bad stuff so that God's purposes could look better. But this should give us comfort for today, that even in their failure, God's plan prevailed. Number eight, God's grace is amazing. We are saved by grace alone, and Paul reminds us of that even in this section. He reminds us of that throughout his letters. He says, so too, at the present time, there will be a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. I love that Paul just throws in that little reminder, just in case you forgot. Truth number nine, the church, including you and me, are grafted in as God's chosen people. So I want you to remember two things this morning, grafted and mystery. So I, I've given you a lot of detail, but if you just kind of remember two, just remember grafted and mystery. Paul says in, in verse 11, 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles as so much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people. And then verse 15, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, um, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And then he goes on and says, if the part of the dough offered as first fruit is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And then he goes on to this long thing. We read it earlier, so I'm not going to read it today, about grafting branches in. I have a, you heard of a green thumb? I have a black thumb. People give me plants. Young's, look, Young's in the congregation right now. She's a plant person. You give me a plant, you're like, this is the easiest plant in the world. Literally the easiest thing. All you got to do is nothing. And it'll grow and thrive just when it needs a little water and I'll kill it. I, for some reason, I just kill plants. I have no idea why. And then we did have a decent garden that Erica and Maggie grew and then deer ate all this stuff. So even that failed, but maybe because I was near it. I, you know, I, I gave them the hose to, that worked it. But there's something about grafting that they knew even then. They didn't have the science and technology we have, but they could make better olives, better flowers, better fruit. By grafting in, they could use the technology they had of the day. And Paul loves this analogy, and he, he, he says that we are grafted in. So we get to produce the same fruit. We're, part, we're not new trees. We're grafted into this vine that we get to produce the same fruit. We have Father Abraham. We are grafted in. And in that grafting, no one can boast. That's truth number 10. Our election is by God's grace and mercy alone and our faith in Jesus Christ. This should make our, our posture, our attitude, grateful, humble, and merciful to others. Paul says in verse 17, If some of the branches have broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, and this is what I want you to focus on, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Paul talks about not boasting throughout his letters, only boast in Christ. It'd be really easy for the Jews or the Gentiles when, when everything's going okay, when money's flowing and everybody's happy, you can disagree on stuff. But as soon as there's a disagreement or money's not happening, it's their fault. Then you break up into the factions. If, we, if they did it, if they, and it'd be really easy for the Jews and the Gentiles in these churches to break into factions. The Jews are like, we have Abraham. The Romans are like, we have Rome. You know, you're in our city. We, took, we conquered you. You know, 
It would be really easy for them, both of them in their sinfulness, to boast in their ethnicity and in in their, these other things. And I believe that Paul brings it up again so that they would remember only to boast in Christ and to be unified and produce fruit. They produce fruit together as grafted trees. And it's cool, the grafting, because you don't really know where one begins or one ends. You're just all part of the same tree. It's a really amazing illustration that, that Paul gives us. Finally, the final truth, number 11. We made it. There's 11 chapters. It just happened to be that way that I picked 11. There's a mystery in the wisdom and, the, and knowledge of God's mercy. And this is a good thing. This is a really good thing. How much does a child need to know about a particular situation to be a child? Mommy, where do kids, where do babies come from? What do you tell a four-year-old? Some of you parents in there are cringing. You have like seven and eight-year-olds and you're like, how much should I tell them? There's great resources out there on like appropriate stuff. But how much does a child need to know? The inquisitive child, me. I was asking all kinds of crazy questions. I figured out, you know, I'd ask my mom and she'd be like, We'll, we'll talk about that later. You know, let's, let's, let's put that one on hold until you're ready. Uh, thinking about like children growing up in a war-torn area. Think about like child during the Holocaust. There's a movie called Life is Beautiful. Italian movie came out like 20 years ago. Really good movie. But the dad is in the concentration camp and he's trying to help his child not experience and not like to live day by day and have hope that one day they're going to get out of this. But his son's not young enough to fully understand how bad it is, that they are on the brink of death. And it's a cool story. And I, and I think that sometimes we forget that in the mystery of election, we want to know everything. We want to know all the details because we're Western logical people. And we want to fight about it. And we're getting all these battles over election. What about this? What about that? Then if this happens, then this, and then this, and then this. And I feel, I, sometimes in that, we forget that our brothers and sisters around the world are just like, I just need to get enough food for tomorrow. How's God going to help? I'm in a con- there are, we have brothers and sisters in the world. More of them are martyred or in prison right now than in any time in history. Partly because there's more people in the world than any time in history. But even percentage-wise, it's pretty close. They're just like, God, save me. And, and, and I think sometimes when we get caught up in these things, Satan can use it to keep us from focusing on how can I go out and tell other people? How can I focus on what is true in, 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 in proclaiming the gospel? Now, I'm not saying that studying election isn't a good thing. I've spent 20 years doing it, and, and it can help. But it's, it's not the end all, and there is a mystery to it. And Paul ends this section telling us about the mystery. So I don't want us to miss that. The only time the mis- this word is used in the gospels is in Mark 4. Paul uses the word mystery 21 times in his letters, but in Mark 4.11, so the only time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John we see this word, in Mark 4.11, Jesus says, he told them, the secret or the mystery, the same, same Greek word, of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. And then Paul uses this a ton. In, here in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, that you may not be conceited. Again, he goes back to the don't boast. So when it comes to the mystery of election, let's not be conceited people. Let's not say, I've got it figured out, my group, my guy, my video, watch this YouTube video. It's okay. I'm not saying don't study it, because for some people, we really need to hash it out. But at the same time, if it makes you conceited, if it keeps you from the purpose of the mission of the local church to be unified in Christ, 
then you're probably dabbling in parts of it that, that are dangerous. So let's reorient back to this mystery. And then Paul goes on and he says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And I don't know exactly what this means. I could give you 15 interpretations from 15 commentaries. It just means God's getting a lot of people. And some people are like, oh, that means when this and that happens and prophecy and this. I don't know. All I know is that God is, we're, we're called to go out and love people and tell them about Jesus. And God is raising up his people and building them up from all over the world using all kinds of technologies until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. I will say that I believe all Israel means all the people who are, you know, Father Abraham's children. That's us, all of us, grafted into the tree. The tree was started by God as Israel's tree, and we're grafted in. As it is written, and this is a cool passage, it says, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn God, the godlessness away from Jacob. Verse 27, And this is my covenant with, with them. I will take away their sins. Now, this isn't exactly in, in the Old Testament. Paul is actually mashing together Isaiah 59, 20, 21, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He's taking a lot, two of the main new covenant promises in the Old Testament, splicing them together into one sentence. And then Paul goes on and he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy on you. It's all about God's mercy. Both groups fail. Both groups fall short. No matter what, you can't. We fall short of God, but it's about his mercy. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. And I'm not going to explain this because I think Paul explains it in the next sentence. I could come up with a really good theological answer for what Paul means here. And it would disagree with some other really smart people who agree on other parts of Paul's letters. Peter himself says what Paul writes is, is hard to understand, but I want, us to, I want to let Paul define it. But before we jump on to the passage, I want to tell one, one story. I have a friend, she grew up in Japan. I met her years later when she was in grad school. I met her here in America. And she grew up, really good student, made good grades, the ideal Japanese girl. But in her heart, she was like, I have no purpose. I wake up every, she just felt empty. And she was like praying, whatever. She didn't really know about the Christian God. She was just say, whoever you are, like answer me. And she, every day in Japan, I don't know what the number is, but people jump in front of trains. It's very, very common. It's so much commonplace that they have a protocol in place where they don't even really stop it. I mean, they don't, you don't even notice it's happening. They just make an announcement, they pick up the body, and move on. And the trains just keep going. It's so, so much commonplace, at least according to her at that time. So she just thought, one day that'll be me in high school. That was what she told. That's her testimony. One day that'll be me. I don't know when, but one day I'm just going to jump in front of the train. And she kept crying out. She met a Christian, which in Japan, there's not a ton of Christians, you know, so the odds of meeting a Christian are not as high as, say, here. I think she was looking at some stuff online and really seeking God in, in every way, she, seeking out answers. And she meets a Christian and hears of the hope of Jesus. And she hears about election, but she doesn't hear about election in light of all the nuances and stuff. She just hears, you were lost. Jesus, God came 
and made a way. 2,000 years ago, darkness broke into light, and Jesus came so that you could be free and you could have purpose. The creator of the universe had a plan from the beginning, and it's marked out, and he called the people, and you're part of this, and, you're, and you have purpose, and you have hope, and that saved her. And I want us to think, when we think about election, I want us to think about Romans 10 and calling, calling out, proclaiming the good news and people believing it and people coming in to God's family. It is a mystery. I'll never, Lawrence, Eric, and I have, probably once every two weeks, we go back and forth on which theologian has a better explanation for election. But I want to end with how Paul ends the whole section. He could have ended with chapter 8. But he doesn't. He ends with this doxology about the mystery of the mercy of God. Oh, the depths, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God, to you be the glory forever. There is a mystery, and we thank you that you don't tell us everything. You just tell us what we need to know to be your people. May we trust you and be faithful and live in that mystery of mercy that sustains us each day and calls us to proclaim the good news to all people. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Waypoint Church, as a church body, as a family, we're going to take this family meal together. And this is an invitation for those who have chosen to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, who are grafted into this family. And we're going to take these, partake of communion together. And as we do so, I want to remind you what a beautiful reminder it is that we have something like Holy Communion to remind us that in the midst of a chaotic world, we have something that sustains, that reminds us, that points us back to Jesus, to remind us of our anchor and a hope in turbulent times. But not only is our anchor, not only is our reminder, but it's also our very means of receiving this grace. As we partake in the family meal together, what happens is the world is crazy. There's so many questions to be asked. There's so many mysteries out there. But when my kid comes and they eat at my table, my kid knows that sustenance comes from his parents. And it's all is going to be okay. In the midst of whatever questions my kids may have to ask of me, they know that their parents are there. And... They're loved and they're safe. My people, no matter what's going on in the world around you, as we come to this table, may you receive sustenance from the body and the blood of Jesus. May you be reminded of his promises and of his goodness. May you rest in who you are in him. And in this chaotic world, may you, may this time of of remembrance of eating of this means of grace, may you be engrafted into him. See, the beautiful thing is, if you guys would partake of the body together with me as you take the body, this is the body of Christ that he freely gave. And in his body, he, he paid the penalty of our sin. He took upon himself the curse. And if you'll take the body with me, we remember the work of Christ and Recept his means of grace. So let's take it together. And we partake of the cup together. This is the blood of his covenant, this new covenant, which is still the old covenant.
a covenant of, of, a, of a God, a promise of a God who is pursuing, who is rescuing, who is saving us. This is a covenant, this is a promise of a God who has established that he will be our God and we will be his people. And not only has he promised it, but he made way for that promise to come true through the work of Jesus. So as we partake of the cup together, we know the promise of him that offered himself up so that the promises will be true. So let's take this cup of the new covenant together. Let's pray. God, you are so good. God, you are so good and you allow us to call you Father for us to, our identity to be found in the fact that we are children of God engrafted into you, adopted by you. That we're part of this tree, this incredible family tree that has Father Abraham as our father. That we're part of this, this remnant, this, this people set apart for you, God. We thank you for that. God, that's our identity. And God, in the midst of this chaotic and crazy time, may we stand firm on that truth that you are a God of promise. God, that you are a keeper of the promise. You are a deliverer and that our sustaining truth that separates us from everything else in this chaotic times is that we are known, we are loved, and we are called to purpose. We are yours. So thank you for that reminder today. And may we go forth with that reminder every day. Celebrating it in Jesus' name. Amen.